If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn over to uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the passage uh, in your bulletin today. We're continuing a series called Jesus is Better. And the whole point of the series is to see 10 reasons why Jesus surpasses everything else. And we're on, I don't know how many we've done so far, but six or something. We've got about four left. Uh, and this morning, we're really going to answer the question, why is this church called Greater Hope? We're answering that question today. It's because we believe Jesus gives us a greater hope than anyone or anything else. Uh, let's read the passage to see how. When God made his promise to Abraham, since he was no, uh, no, there was no greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now verse 20 in chapter 7. Or 20, yeah, 23, sorry. Now there had been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, uh, separated from, from sinners and exalted in the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made priest forever. This is God's word again this morning. In the 1930s and 40s, there was a, a man named Viktor Frankl. Uh, who lived in Vienna, Austria. And uh, Viktor Frankl was a neuroscientist, meaning yeah, basically he's a lot smarter than I am. Uh, he studied the brain, and he was like a doctor who helped uh, people with different brain injuries and brain problems. Very smart man. But when World War II broke out, because he was Jewish, he was arrested by the Nazis and ta obviously taken out of his practice and put in a concentration camp. In the concentration camp, I think he was at Auschwitz, uh, he lost his father. He saw his father die because his dad was there with him. 
Uh, he would eventually lose his wife because his wife got a disease while she was in there and died. Uh, but he survived, and his children survived. And so right after he, the war was over, he went back to Vienna, opened up his office again. And over the course of that first year, he sat down, and in nine days, he wrote an entire book about his experiences. Uh, that book was called Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote it in nine days. He took his experience as a neuroscientist, and he combined it with his experience as a concentration camp prisoner, and he came to this conclusion. The only thing that can keep someone living through difficult times is that they have something to look forward to that's better than what they have now. In other words, you cannot live without hope, is what he said. He learned that. He said in the concentration camp, there were some people who, uh, you know, survived reasonably well. And there were other people who didn't. They kind of gave up on life very quickly. And he said the difference was one had something to look forward to, the other didn't. There were some prisoners who kept their character intact. They were kind people and they remained kind people. There were other people who got really nasty. It was well documented in his book that a lot of the prisoners, or not a lot, but a good minority of the prisoners in the concentration camp actually took on the cruelty of the Nazis and started treating each other cruelly as they had been treated. He said the difference between those two groups was the same thing. They had something to look forward to. The other ones didn't. Don't you know hope is that important? That's what hope is, by the way. If you don't know a definition of hope, it's having something to look forward to that's coming, that's better than what you have currently. Well, the passage that we read uses the word hope over and over again. Did you notice that? And every time it's trying to make this point. The hope that we get from Jesus is in an entirely different category than the hope that we can get from anything else. The hope we get from Jesus is a greater hope. And he tells us by showing us three pictures in this passage. He paints three pictures for us. And if you look at the back of your bulletin, you can find the outline there. The three pictures we want to look at today. First of all, he shows us the picture of an oath that ends all argument. Secondly, he shows us a picture of an anchor that can't be moved. And lastly, he shows us a picture of a priest who never dies. An oath that ends all argument, an anchor that can't be moved, and a priest that never dies. Let's talk about those three today. First of all, there's an oath that ends all argument. Notice there in verse 13 of chapter 6, he brings up the great story of Abraham. Now, he says, uh, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater by which God could swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless your descendants. Now, why does he bring up Abraham? Well, think about it. What do we call Abraham? Maybe you don't know, but in the children's song that a lot of people learned, you know, as kids in church, well, what do we call Abraham? Father Abraham, right? And, and we call him Father, why? Because in some way, we're supposed to be like him, sort of chip off the old blocks, uh, Abraham's experience with God was supposed to be a pattern that we can lay over our lives and cut it out to fit. The way Abraham knew God is the way we can know God. And so that's why he brings him up. But notice how Abraham knew God. It's very important. God gave to Abraham two things which enabled him to know him. Two things. The first thing God gave to Abraham, verse 13, is his promise. Isn't that the main part of Abraham's story? God showed up one day in his life. He was, you know, almost 100 years old. And he said, Abraham, you're going to have a child, not only one child, but many descendants. Abraham, nations are going to come from you. Now, 
That was an audacious promise. Again, Abraham was 100 years old. He was older than anybody in the room. His wife was over 90. They had never had a child. She was barren. And yet God came with a promise, Abraham, you're going to have children. God added to that promise. He says, Abraham, your children are going to have a land to live in. Now, Abraham was a gypsy. He was a nomad. He chased sheep around, moving from one place to the next. He owned not a single acre of land. And yet God gave a promise. Abraham, I'm going to give you a huge land for your descendants to live in. He added to the promise even more. He said, your descendants who are going to live in this land that I'm going to give them are going to be a blessing to every nation in the whole world. And that was crazy because Abraham was just a no-name shepherd in some backwater part of the Middle East you know, 4,000 years ago. And yet God gave his promise. But notice, God gave Abraham a second thing by which Abraham could know him. It says... When God made his promise to Abraham, because there was no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. God gave to Abraham, along with his promise, his oath. That's different than a promise. An oath is different than a promise. It goes along with a promise, but it's different than a promise. Uh, think about it. Everybody in here has taken an oath at some point in their life, right? Uh, when you go to jury duty, you've got to raise your hand and repeat after the judge. I don't remember what it is you have to say, but something important, really important. And you should mean it when you say it. When you're taking the witness stand, you have to put your hand usually on a Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. When you got married, if you're married, you had to stand in front of people and take a vow, which is a type of oath. Even when you signed your mortgage papers, if you have those, or when you signed your car loan, if you read in the fine print, it's basically an oath that you're making. To have and to hold, I'm going to do this, so help me God. What does an oath do for a promise? It comes with a promise, but it's separate than a promise. What does it do? Well, it tells us there in verse 16. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath does what? It confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. The reason why we need oaths is because we know each other. And we know ourselves. We know that half the things we say we don't fully mean. And we have many times made promises that we haven't kept. Amen? We've all done it. And we know people who have done it. And so when it comes to really, really important things like marrying somebody, taking out a huge loan on something, going in front of the court of law or something like that, we tend to require people to take oaths because we know folks are just not very trustworthy. And the oath is supposed to confirm the thing that was really supposed to be confirmed by the promise, but because we're unfaithful, promises don't really confirm much. Notice what happens here. When God came to Abraham, did God need to add an oath to his promise to make it more sure? Does God have to take oaths? He doesn't. But because what God promised Abraham was so crazy and audacious, and because Abraham's first response was actually to laugh, <laughs> and Sarah laughed too, you mean I'm going to have a child, she said? Me? As old as I am? As old as he is? He's going to give me a child? You're kidding. Because of our weakness, because of Abraham's weakness, God added an oath to his promise to make it more sure, to put it beyond reasonable doubt, to end the arguments that inevitably rise in their hearts and in ours every single time God tells us a promise. Isn't that amazing? God is an oath-giving and an oath-keeping God. 
In fact, that's what the Bible means by the word covenant, which is what God made with Abraham and it's what he makes with you and I. The kind of relationship God has with us through Jesus is called a covenant. And literally the word covenant means oath relationship. When we come to communion later today, uh, when Jesus gave communion, he said, this is about my covenant. We even in the church call this a sacrament. You know what the word sacrament means? Literally in Latin it means oath. This is God's oath. God has not only in his word given us words, statements about what he's going to do and how he's going to work in our lives, but God has also raised his right hand, if you will, and sworn by his very self that he is going to keep the oaths and the promises that he makes with us. And so it says there, we who have taken hold, look at verse 18, we who have fled to take hold of this hope may be greatly encouraged by the fact that God has not only given his promise, he's given his oath with it. Isn't that amazing? Now, let me tell you, you might, you might say, well, what, how does this help me, what you're saying? It's very theoretical. Well, let me tell you how it helps me. Something I've noticed about myself is I tend to base my encouragement in my relationship with God on the, subject, on the subjective side of my relationship with God rather than the objective let me explain. There's a subjective side and an objective side. The objective side is where God says in his word, this is what will happen. This is what I will do for you. Whether you believe it or not, this is what's going to happen because I'm God. That's objective. It doesn't change it whether I believe it or whether I don't believe it, whether I'm excited about it or not excited about it. It is what it is. It's like the sky is blue. But there's always in a relationship with God and a subjective side where I actually begin to believe what is true about God, what he's told me, and I actually become even emotionally invested in it. I, I take it to heart. And that's a good thing. You have to have both to have a relationship with God. But you can never base, like I often do, your encouragement in where you're at with God on your subjective and not your objective. Because it's a little like saying, hey, I'm really encouraged right now. And you say to me, why are you encouraged? Well, I'm encouraged because I'm encouraged. You say, well, okay. Is there any other reason? No, I'm just really encouraged because I feel encouraged. I feel like God's close to me because I feel like God's close to me. Do you hear a problem in that? Here's the problem with that. What happens when God doesn't feel close to you? Is there any way on that scheme of things to go from discouraged to encouraged if you're not already encouraged? There's zero, way, there's zero chance of it. That's why, exactly why God said to Abraham, I don't want you to just believe me if you feel like believing me. I want you to believe in me because I am me. And so therefore, I raise my right hand and I swear my oath to you. Something you can bank on, something that's just as sure as if you signed your name on the dotted line. As if God has signed his name on the dotted line. We have to learn, y'all, to, to not always live and die by whether we feel God is close to us or not. As Christians. If you're a Christian, the Bible says he is close to you. He lives in you. Uh, he's closer to you than your innermost thought. <laughs> he knows you better than you know yourself, whether you feel like it or not. Encourage your hearts, it says, in the hope that Jesus gives. It's a greater hope because this hope is not based on how you feel. It's based on what he is. Better yet, it's based on who he is. Something that never, ever changes and never, ever fades. That's why the Bible, by the way, is able to say as a commandment, be courageous. 
Have you ever thought about that? That's a weird commandment to give, isn't it? Really, commanding anybody to feel any way is a weird commandment. How how do you tell somebody they have to feel a certain way? It it just seems odd. Especially if my feelings are based on my feelings. But because they're not, God is able to say, hey, be courageous. Why? Because I am here. I am me. I am who I am. He says, rejoice always. Why rejoice? Not because you are already rejoicing, but because I am worthy of being rejoiced in. And my, my ways are praiseworthy and delightful. Y'all, do you realize that your relationship with God is that real this morning? Later in the service, you'll, you'll eat some bread, you'll drink some juice. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is just as real as that bread going down your throat. And that juice going back and nourishing your body. In the same way, God has said, I will nourish your soul. That's the first picture, an oath that ends all argument. It, it takes away the doubt. It takes away the fear that fights against God's word. Now, secondly, he shows us a picture of an anchor that can't be moved. Uh, wouldn't you say anchors are important things to have on a boat? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're allowed to say out loud, yes, yeah. Uh, anchors are extremely important to have on a boat. In fact, you know, the funny thing about anchors uh, is uh, they don't work by themselves. You follow me? Uh, the anchor is heavy, yes, but it's not heavy enough. If you just throw it out and it never hits the ground or never catches on anything, it's not going to actually keep your boat. It might slow your boat down a little bit, but it's not going to hold it steady in place, especially not during a storm. An anchor works by the other thing that it attaches to, right? That's the first thing about anchors. The second thing about anchors is you can hardly ever see what it is that your anchor is latching to. You have to throw it out there kind of and let it drop, and somewhere down in the unseen depths it finds the thing that you need it to find, and it, it clicks. In fact, when you need an anchor the most is usually when you're, most likely to, you're less likely to see it. Let me say that again. When you need an anchor the most is when you're less likely to see it catch. Maybe the water is too deep, you really need an anchor. Maybe it's stormy and the water is all churned up, you need an anchor really bad. Maybe it's getting dark outside and you're stranded. When you need it most, there's the least chance that you're going to see where it catches. Well, that's what he says there beginning in verse 19. The hope of Jesus is greater because it's, it, it works like an anchor. It catches on something besides you. It catches on something besides even the things that we can see in the world. In fact, it catches on something unseen. Verse 19 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It's not just an anchor for my temporary circumstantial prosperity. It's an anchor for my soul. It's not a weak anchor. It's firm and secure. Why? Because it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. He's describing heaven there. Where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. The picture is this. Our anchor goes into unseen realms, but it doesn't go down in the depths like a, like a boat anchor. It goes into the heights in heaven like a Jesus anchor. Like basically the picture in your mind should be this. When Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter Sunday and then a few weeks later went into heaven, he was holding in his hand an anchor, which the other end of which was attached to your soul. 
And as he rose, the, the rope went with him. And when he sat forever at the right hand of God to reign over the world and to be the conquering victorious king, he sat with that anchor still in his hand. And it's lodged there. Jesus says in John, no one will be able to pluck you out of my hand. The other end of the anchor of our souls, the other end of our hope, when it's fixed on Jesus in heaven in the unseen realm, is absolutely perfectly stable, not unstable like all the other things we might try to hope in. That's why Jesus' hope is greater than anybody else's hope. When we hope in temporary things, we're wasting our time. We're wasting our time. Do you remember on the first Easter Sunday uh, when uh, Jesus rose from the dead? Uh, he was gone, but an angel appeared to the women at the tomb. Do you remember what they asked? the angel asked the women? A really cool question that you need to think about this morning. The angel said to the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? That's an important question, right? Um, you know, we all know if you lose something, the fact that it's lost means you're not looking in the right place, right? If you're looking in the right place, it'd be found. That's the way things get lost is you're looking in the wrong place to find the thing. When, when the angel said to the women, why are you looking for the living and among the dead? He was, trying to, he was expressing to them, when it comes to Jesus, you cannot base your hope on the things that you see in this world because those things are just temporary. They're passing away. What you need to do is look for the living among the living. You need to look among those things that cannot pass away. Why can't they pass away? Because Jesus went into death and came out that death may die. Jesus rose on high to never die again because he conquered death. Jesus can never, ever be undone. And so if you anchor yourself to him, you anchor yourself to something that cannot and will not ever be moved. That's very different than what we tend to anchor ourselves to. Think about what you try to anchor your soul to every day of your life. I mean, do you find yourself you know, anchoring your soul to your achievements maybe? Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look at this degree. Look at this job. Look at this, you know, family. Whatever it is. It could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. But nevertheless, if you try to put your anchor in that thing, guess what you're doing? You're, putting, you're entrusting your soul to something that will not outlast your soul. You're entrusting your soul to something that won't even outlast your soul. Which doesn't really, when you think about it, doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Sometimes it's not achievements, because you, you may say, well, I don't have many achievements to show for. I understand that feeling. Sometimes we base our hope on something even more passing, and that's our aspirations of achievement in the future. You know, we have that attitude like uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton in the, uh, the Broadway musical about him, where he says, my name is Alexander Hamilton. There's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait. Just you wait. I haven't achieved much yet, but it's coming in the future. And so really the thing that, so Viktor Frankl, you know, the guy who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, when he said you've got to have something to look forward to, one thing he missed in my humble opinion is that he thought even if that thing was a temporary thing, even if it was just an achievement you were wanting to achieve in the future, that would be enough to sustain you. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. The human soul needs something at least as strong as itself. 
And the things that can be seen in this world, none of them will outlast your soul. And so, where does our anchor need to be? It needs to be in heaven. It needs to be where Christ is gone. Remember, he took the anchor in his own right hand and, and flew up to heaven with it. And sat down to anchor it to the throne of God. That's why Paul says in Philippians, there's a famous verse that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And a lot of times, you know, we think of that for some reason as having to do with athletics. You know, the, the, the team, you know, thinks I'm going to win the game because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And really, that, unsurprisingly, that's not what that verse is actually about. It does not promise you that you're going to win or be able to lift the weights or whatever. I'm sorry to say, it doesn't promise that. But it promises something better than that. Because in the verse before, Paul says, look, I know the secret to life. I know how to have a whole lot of stuff when I'm blessed, but I, I know how to have absolutely nothing when I don't have very many things going for me in life. I know how to do both things, and I know how to do them with the same amount of joy both ways. I don't know that any of us in here can say that we do that like Paul did that. And that's when Paul says, here's how I can do it. Here's the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, he said, my anchor is not in things. That's why things can come and go. Um, you know, anchoring to things is like trying to tie your boat to a piece of driftwood. Or, or a bottle floating by in the ocean. Paul says, I can let the driftwood come and go. When the driftwood's here, I can build a fire, warm myself, cook a meal. It's great. But when the driftwood doesn't come, it doesn't bother me much because my anchor's not in it. My anchor's somewhere else in the unseen depths. I can't see it, but it's there. And I know it's there because I know the effect of it on my heart. Don't you want that? That's what a greater hope is. It's about every day looking up instead of looking down so much. Sometimes we have this sort of tunnel vision where all we see is what is seen. <laughs> all we see is what is going on right now in my life rather than thinking, wow, I see Jesus seated at the right hand of God and there's an anchor in his hand. And when I trace the rope from the other end of that anchor, it comes all the way down to my soul. That's amazing. That's the second picture. The last picture today, and we'll, we'll hurry with this one, is there's a priest that never dies. A priest that never dies. It tells us there in uh, chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus, when he entered heaven, became a high priest forever, it says, forever. Jesus never stops being a high priest. In the order of Melchizedek, and he brings up this guy, you know, Melchizedek, who is king of Salem, priest of God. We, we read his story earlier in the service. In fact, what we read earlier is the only place where you read any story about Melchizedek in the whole Bible. I, I read to you the sum total to this morning of what it says about Melchizedek. And that's, I think that's actually the reason why he brings Melchizedek up. Because there's so much mystery about that dude. You know, we don't know where he came from. We don't know where he ended up. We don't know who his mom was, who his dad was, how long he reigned, uh, anything. Why he wanted to come to Abraham, we have no clue. It's just mysteriously out of the blue, boom, there's Melchizedek. And Melchizedek showed up in Abraham's life on a particularly difficult day. It was on one of those days that it was simultaneously really good and really bad. Have you ever had a day like that where it's like super good, but also because it's super good, it's super bad? Um, you're so tired, you know, because maybe you did something great. It was hard, so it was good, but it was that you're tired. 
Well, this is what happened. I mean, Abraham went out, and because his nephew got into trouble, uh, he went out and had to fight a battle against five armies to save his nephew. By the way, Abraham was not a warrior. This was not his calling. It was not his profession. He was a shepherd. He, he was a man of peace. Uh, you know, he was just not, not a soldier. And so you can imagine, even though he won the battle that day, how deflated, maybe a little depressed he would have felt. Meanwhile, he's got other kings coming to him, trying to strike deals with him. He's exhausted. Well, here comes this other king, Melchizedek, who also happens to be a priest somehow. And he brings to him bread and wine. He doesn't come saying, Abraham, give me, give me, give me. He comes saying, Abraham, eat. Eat of my food. Let me nourish you. You don't have to give me anything. Let me first give you something. Melchizedek sat him down and Abraham received the nourishment of the bread and the wine. And at the end it says, Abraham was so full of joy that he gave Melchizedek a tenth of all he had. He tithed to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek lifted up his hands and blessed Abraham in the name of God most high, the creator of heaven and earth. This passage says, Jesus is a priest like that. He's a priest like that. Say, okay, what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, there's a mystery to his priesthood. Jesus is really the only priest, actually, that you need because Jesus is a priest that never dies. Jesus is a priest who goes on forever and ever. Uh, it tells us in... Um, in verse uh, 25 of chapter 7, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. There's a mystery about Jesus' priesthood. He never dies. He's always interceding for you in heaven. The anchor never loses its hold. But Jesus is also like Melchizedek, verse 26, because he is exactly, truly what we need. See what it says there in verse 26? He is exactly what we need. He meets our need. And that's what Melchizedek did for Abraham. He showed up at the right moment, the opportune time, when Abraham needed it most, but when he was expecting it least. And he gave to Abraham exactly the thing that would have encouraged and lifted up his heart. What are we learning about Jesus here? The hope that he gives us is greater than anything else because he doesn't just give you stuff. He gives you himself. He gives you himself. Just like Melchizedek. Here I am, Abraham. Here's my food. Here's my drink. Let's have a meal. Let me bless you. You don't have to give me anything. Let me bless you. Abraham, you're tired. But blessed are you by God most high. God has given you a great victory today. God smiles on you, Abraham. And if you're a true Christian... That's exactly what Jesus does. He stands ready to do that. More ready than you are to come to him, he's ready to come to you. At every single point and moment of your daily need. And when he comes, he doesn't say, hey, here's just a few things to think about. He says, here's myself. Take your fill from me as a fountain for your soul. He comes to us not saying, oh, you know, here's the stuff you got to do for me. He says, here's what I have done for you. What you do for me is just a response to what I do for you. Let me come and first serve you. It's infinitely better, y'all, to know a person than it is to know a thing. Isn't it? God isn't just a thing. Jesus is not just a thing. Uh, you, when you know a thing, it's like in science class. You can put something under a microscope and look at it and 
you can write, you can ask questions about it, write down your answers. It's so big, it's this color, it's that color, it's growing, it's not growing, it's moving, it's not moving. You can ask it questions, but it can't ask any back. You can make demands of the thing, but it can't make demands of you. You can love the thing, but it can't love you back if you want. You could bless it all day long, but it can't bless you back. Jesus brings us himself, which means, guess what? We can ask him questions, but he's going to be asking you questions too. We can make requests of, of Christ, but he'll make demands in return. Jesus, uh, you know, as the Narnia books say about Aslan, he's not safe, but he's good. When you come to him, you know, you, you don't know exactly what you're bargaining for, right? It's kind of like grabbing a cat by the tail. You're not sure <laughs> what's going to happen next, except it's going to be a wild ride. And coming to Jesus is always a wild ride. But guess what it is? It's also the deepest nourishment for the deepest needs that you have in your life. That's what it is. It says there, in uh, this is the last thing we'll look at, uh, in verse um, 26, it begins to list the things about Jesus that meets our need. He's holy, first of all. That's amazing because I am not holy. I'm unworthy. I have not loved the Lord my God with all my heart. I haven't. But at my point of unworthiness, Jesus meets me like Melchizedek with his holiness. It says here he's blameless. I'm not blameless. I have done things to people that have hurt them. I've been unjust to people. I've been unfair. I've been unmerciful. But yet in my blameworthiness, Jesus meets me with a dose, a swig of his blamelessness. He says he's pure. Pure speaks to someone's heart being untainted. My heart is very tainted with all kinds of things. My heart is tainted most of all with shame and guilt a lot of times. But at the point of my shame and guilt, Jesus comes and meets me with his purity and gives it to me freely. I, like you, like every human being, I am unable to fix my problem. Completely unable. And yet it says Jesus is separate from sinners. Do you see that? He's set apart. That means Jesus can fix what you can't. And so he meets me at my point of helplessness with his almighty help. Last thing it says, he's exalted in the heavens. And most of my life is a story of humiliation. Humiliation that I've deserved, you know. And yet Jesus meets me at my lowest point in my humiliation and he gives me the gift of his exaltation, an anchor in his right hand to lift me up to heaven where my God is. Do you see how great Jesus is? One of the reasons why the hope that you get from him is better than anything else is because he doesn't just give it to you and go away. He comes to you day by day in all the ins and outs of your life. And just like Melchizedek, he says, sit down at my table and feast with me. Receive me. Be blessed by God most high.